Hi, this is Him We Proclaim with Dr. John Fonville. We're well underway in our sexual purity series called Do You Not Know? Our next message is called Your Body is Sacred. The Apostle Paul was addressing a tough crowd that was steeped into immorality and it was going on in the church. He challenged them with some important questions that lead them to seeing their bodies as set apart for the gospel. We hope you'll stay tuned. Here's John with Your Body is Sacred, Part 2. Now, Paul takes that doctrine of union with Christ and gives you the flip of that argument. And it goes like this, and this is his point for sexual purity. In the context of 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says Christ and his people are so closely united that whatever his people do, they are joining Christ to their actions. Whatever you do, you are taking Christ with you to do that. When you, when you participate in sexual immorality, whether than in action or in thought, Jesus says, if you even look at a woman, and he's just given an illustration, women, you're included in this command. If you even look at a woman or a man in your heart with lust, you've already committed adultery. Whenever you do that, Paul says, you are taking Christ's members, his body, and joining him to that which is impure, defiled, and unholy. And in this context, it was some of the Corinthian men taking Christ's body and joining them to a prostitute who would ever take the sinless, risen, glorious Son of God who has entered into heaven because of his perfect, active obedience of living a life of pure holiness, and join him to a prostitute, Paul says. It is blasphemous to even think about that. It's utterly unthinkable. And so Paul, to drive this point home further, expands it in verses 16 and 17. And look what he says. He says, do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? How do we know that happens? Because the scriptures tell us it does. He appeals to Genesis 2.24, for as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Sexual immorality cannot be regarded as lawful. All things are lawful for me. It cannot be regarded as simply satisfying the natural craving and urge of the body. Food is for the stomach and stomach is for the food. The reason is because... That immoral action creates an unholy bond between the person and Christ. It's impossible. The physical union of a husband and wife is analogous to, but not equal to, the legal and vital union between Christ and his people. That is why God has given marriage and given the physical union of marriage to be an analogy of Christ in the church and his union with his people, the gospel is the fulfillment of the creation design of a union of a husband and wife. Christ's union with his people is far deeper than the union of a husband and wife, which only it serves as an imperfect analogy. And so Paul grounds this bonding by citing Genesis 2.24. Now listen, when Paul says 
that when a believer, a Corinthian man, joins himself to a prostitute, he's not blessing that by appealing to Genesis 2.24. For example, he's not suggesting that union with the prostitute is equivalent to the union, the joining of a husband and wife in marriage. It's not what he's saying. In creation, God blessed the physical union of a husband and wife in marriage, but in, listen, outside of the husband and wife union, he curses and brings judgment to that as expressed in the seventh commandment. Listen to the author of Hebrews referring to the seventh commandment in relationship to the physical union of marriage. Let marriage be held in honor among all, And let the marriage bed be undefiled, the cleaving together of a husband and wife in union. But God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. He does not bless this unholy union. The union of a husband and wife in marriage is holy and blessed by God. But the union of a man and a woman outside of marriage or before marriage is unholy and cursed by God. And even though Paul says that this unholy sexual and moral union corrupts God's design and creation of the union of a husband and wife in marriage, it still retains a faint resemblance to it. By referring to Genesis 2.24, and here's the point so that you get how it applies to you daily, so get the theology, and here it is. All sexual and moral behavior creates a real bond to that act, thing, or person. A real bond. Because that's how God designed it in creation. And he says this, the two become one flesh is true and proper only in terms of marriage alone because only the gospel is a fulfillment of that analogy. The gospel is not a fulfillment of the analogy of something before or after that union in marriage. And so Paul says, he's, look, he's applying this truth of this real bond to those who commit sexual immorality because when you join two individuals together, they create, outside of the marriage covenant, they create an unholy and an impure bond. And Paul says this is unthinkable that you could do this because you're united to Christ in a holy bond. And so Paul's point, because a believer is united to Christ both in soul and in body, the believer's immoral actions create an unholy bond between Jesus' body and his or her sin. Do you see that? And so Paul drives this point home in verse 17. He says, he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Listen carefully. In verse 17, Paul describes the union with Christ with the same verb that he describes the union with a prostitute in verse 16. The same verb. In fact, if you go and you look at the Greek Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, when Moses writes, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast or cleave to his wife, the verb cleave is the same verb that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 17 and verse 16 to talk about the union between a husband and wife and the union between Christ and his people. 
and they shall become one flesh. For example, in Jeremiah 13, verse 11, the prophet Jeremiah says that the Lord caused the Israelites to cleave to him, to belong to him, to be an intimate, close union with him. And so he says this, for as a loincloth clings, and there's the same verb as 1 Corinthians 6, as Genesis 2.24, for as a loincloth clings to the waist of a man, so I made the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah cling to me, be joined to me in a real intimate bond. Why? So that they might be for me a people. And they might be a name and a praise and a glory, but they would not listen to me. How tragic. How tragic that instead of cleaving to the Lord, God's people stubbornly followed their own heart and went licentiously after other gods to serve and worship them and fully abandoned themselves to idolatry. And so Jeremiah says that the ruin of Israel and Judah, their pride and their idolatry clung to them like a ruined loincloth. The point that Jeremiah is making, the point that Paul is making, the point that Moses makes in Genesis 2 is all the same point, which is this. The essence of the covenant is to belong, to cling to, to cleave to the Lord in order to be a people who belong to him for his name and his praise. We are not to be like the Corinthians who arrogantly followed after the idol of sexual immorality in their culture. We have been set apart by God to belong to God for his name and praise. 1 Corinthians 6, 11, we have been sanctified. We belong to him. This is the essence of the new covenant. This is the essence of the gospel, to belong to the living Christ himself through the power of the Holy Spirit. God's people have been set apart. And so Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 13, the body is not meant for sexual immorality. We do not belong to that. But for the Lord, we belong to the Lord. And the Lord belongs to us through covenant, which is the gospel, bound together by the power of the Holy Spirit forever. You belong to him. In Acts chapter 15, verse 14, James at the Jerusalem Council confirms Peter's argument that God was now taking the Gentiles, not just the Jews, to take from among the Gentiles, listen, a people for his name. You know what that expression is? For his name means for himself. God, through grace, is gathering a people into his church and his kingdom to belong to him for his self, for himself. And also, this for his name not only implies to belong to him, but it also has the idea for his reputation and praise, for his glory. 1 Corinthians 6.20, glorify God with your body. He has He has saved you to belong to him so that you cannot belong to sexual idolatry, but to glorify him in your body, to do and be what he has created you to be and do. In Romans chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, Paul begins his letter to the Romans like this. He says, I have received grace and apostleship for the purpose of bringing about the obedience of faith, obedience that flows from faith 
for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Christ Jesus. This is his strategy. He begins by reintroducing the Corinthians to a basic and yet vital implication of the gospel, which is that through the gospel and faith, by the power of the Holy Spirit, the believer's body as well as soul is united. They become members of Christ. And because your body belongs to the Lord by resurrection and by virtue of union and by virtue of adoption, you cannot engage in unrestrained sexual license because you would never for a moment say, Jesus, let's go visit a prostitute, right? The Holy Spirit through the gospel empowers us to obey the seventh commandment, flee sexual immorality, and glorify God in his or her body. So as we reflect on this teaching that Paul is showing us about the doctrine of union with Christ, this is far more than a systematic theology lesson about union with Christ in a classroom. This has powerful, powerful life-changing implications for our daily life. He's teaching us that union with Christ is our reference point for all our sexual behavior. I'll say it like this. The believer's union with Christ is the fountain of all sexual purity. I'll say it like this. Our bodies do not belong to us. They belong to Christ in a manner that is analogous but not equal to the union of the bodies of a husband and wife in marriage. And so, therefore, those who commit sexual immorality take Christ's body and join it to that which is sexually immoral, impure, and unholy, and that is unthinkable. And Paul says, self-consciously reflect on that, and you'll pursue holiness and flee sexual immorality. He's teaching us, you can say it like this, he's teaching us that a self-conscious awareness of our union with Christ exercises powerful daily sanctification. You cannot be self-consciously aware of your union with Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit through faith in the gospel and sit there and look at pornography on the computer. Because your eyes are Jesus' eyes and his eyes are your eyes. And would you ever have the Son of God invited into that vile and pure act and say, let's go do that together. When we talk about being gospel-centered and living by the gospel daily is that which leads to sanctification rather than steps and principles, this is it. A self-conscious awareness of your union with Christ will lead you to obey the seventh commandment. It will empower you, motivate you to flee it and to want to pursue the glorification of God through purity in a disciplined life, both inside and outside of the marriage. Incidentally, this is how we're to teach abstinence to our children. We do believe in abstinence, but we believe in teaching gospel-driven abstinence. Let me help you with this, parents. This is how I teach my children in our home. If you're wondering, what do I do for my children? What is my strategy? I'm going to give to you exactly what I teach my children. We do not teach, Catherine and I do not teach only abstinence to our children because that is only half of what the seventh commandment requires. Abstinence is only half of what the seventh commandment requires requires. It also requires us not to just abstain, but to pursue 
actively holiness. So first, if we only teach abstinence and don't teach how abstinence is grounded in union with Christ, motivated by the gospel, our young people are going to be far less motivated to pursue sexual purity, and they'll probably and most likely react negatively to it. Second, if we only teach abstinence, flee sexual immorality, abstain till you're married, but don't also teach our children to obey what the seventh commandment requires, which is to live pure and disciplined life, both within and outside of marriage, you'll only raise up a moralistic idolater in your house in the place of a sexual idolater. You'll create a Pharisee instead of a prostitute. I want you to listen carefully. Moralism is the enemy of the gospel. As destructive and defiling sexual sin is to the individual and the community at large in the church and society, and it is devastating, no question. Read 1 Corinthians 5. It must be weeded out of the church. No problem there. But it's as bad and destructive and defiling as it is. You know what? Ultimately, far more destructive and Christ-denying is moralistic idolatry because... Moralism erects in all manners of extra-biblical laws that God neither forbids nor requires in his own law for true righteousness. And so legalism and moralism might look like super holiness, but on the inside, Christ says it's full of dead men's bones because it is leading people to disregard the law of God and erect the laws of men. And when you substitute, listen, God's law for your own law, you then substitute Christ and his righteousness for a Christ-denying self-righteousness, and you shift the ground of justification from Christ to self. A sexual idolater has hope of being saved through the gospel because they eventually, if they hear the law, recognize, I am just ruined my life and I need Jesus. But a moralistic idolater, you can't get them to see their need for anything because they don't need Jesus. And if you're teaching your children abstinence without the gospel, you're going to make them a moralistic idolater and separate them from Christ. And so Paul begins his letter to the Corinthians by addressing the Corinthians who are gifted, messy saints as saints, 1 Corinthians 1, 2. But he begins his letter to the Galatians by calling them cosmic traitors. I like that. And then he pronounces a curse of final judgment on any who proclaim or receive a different gospel. Now, let's go back to Paul's argument as we conclude this, and, and, and let's, let's look at how the implication of union with Christ sanctifies my daily life in this area. Here's how it happens. Every time you're tempted to look at pornography on your computer, every time you're tempted to watch an immoral program on television, every time you're tempted to read Mommy Porn, which is Fifty Shades of Grey right now, popular book, Every time, guys, you're tempted to lust for a bikini-clad female at the beach when you go surfing. Every time you're tempted to lust for a decked-out lady in the gym. Women, every time you're enticed by a sweet word from a co-worker, an email from an old boyfriend, an invitation on Facebook, an alluring smile at a neighborhood get-together cookout. Every time loneliness fills your heart, 
and passion comes knocking at the door, this is what you do. You need to remember that every time you commit sexual immorality and break the seventh commandment, you join Christ to that act, and you defile the Son of God. Calvin says, while God the Father has united us to his Son, what wickedness there would be in tearing away our body from that sacred connection and giving it over to things unworthy of Christ. Are you beginning to see now how the gospel exercises powerful effects of sanctification on your daily life? Are you beginning to see how living by faith and living by the gospel produces sanctification? What you believe, your union with Christ, your self-conscious awareness of your union with Christ will govern how you live, flee sexual immorality, pursuing purity, a disciplined life in and outside of marriage, seeking to glorify God. Would you take the sinless, radiant, risen, holy Son of God and join him to the sinful, polluting filth of your sexual immorality? Paul says every single time you commit sexual immorality, that's exactly what you're doing. Are you going to take Christ's fingers, his members, and click on a porn site this afternoon? Are you going to take Christ's eyes and lust after a man or woman in your heart? Are you going to take Christ's ears and indulge in lewd conversations or perhaps dial an 800 porn service and listen to it on the other line? Would you dare take the members of Christ and make them members of an adulterer and have an extramarital, what they call affair, which is adultery? Possessing a self-conscious, gospel-centered focus, Paul says, forcefully leads you to respond. Here it is. Meganoita. May it never be. Never. By no means. God forbid. It is utterly blasphemous prospect to be a gospel-centered believer and join Christ to my immoral pollution. But the fact is that every time you break the seventh commandment, you join Christ to that which is immoral, impure, defiled, and unholy. And Paul says it is only by listening and awakening to a conscious, self-conscious reality. He says in verses 15 through 17, two times, do you not know? Do you not know? Do you not know that, listen, living by self-conscious awareness that I am so closely united to Christ that whatever I do with my body, I take Christ and do it with, with me. That is what creates sanctification and holiness. Now, there's one final thought before we close. Paul says that every act of sexual immorality by a believer joins Christ in that act. Now, I want you to reflect on something this morning as we finish. Have you ever considered how many times in your life, by thought and or action, you have joined Christ to that which is sexually impure? Just think about this past week where you failed. And even though you are exceedingly guilty of such a reprehensible act, this sin is not held against you. Can you believe that? I hope you can. This shocking and seemingly almost too good to be true news is really true. And how can this be? How can time after time when you continually fail as a believer and pollute Christ not have the judgment of God come down upon you and consume you. Because Paul's already dealt with that in verse 11 of chapter 6. And this is what he said. Those who are in Christ have been washed. They've been regenerated and cleansed, not only from their past sins, but all their present and future sins. You are washed and clean. Second, 
All who are in Christ have been sanctified, chosen, and set apart by God for God to be saints and holy ones. All who are in Christ have been justified, declared righteous, and made declared to be perfect law keepers. Therefore, because you are united to Christ and have received the gift of justification, all of your sins, including sexual sins and failures, though unspeakably wicked and defiling, are not held against you in God's courtroom. There is no condemnation. There is hope and forgiveness for your failures and your sin. These actions by God simply testify to the unfathomable, unspeakable grace of God and Christ toward us. This is amazing. So if you find yourself this morning because of your failures in this area, crying out like Paul, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Learn like the Apostle Paul to live in a self-conscious reality of your union with Christ. And like Paul, turn from looking inside yourself and your failures and look outside of yourself to Christ and confess, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Thanks, John. The message you just heard is called Your Body is Sacred, Part 2. More from the Do You Not Know series coming up next time. The mission of Him We Proclaim is to bring you the gospel of good news each weekday. And it's our prayer that your heart will be filled with joy and a clear understanding of the gospel and God's word. If you want to hear a past broadcast, check out our podcast in iTunes or download our app. Just search for Dr. John Fonville in iTunes or Google Play. Him We Proclaim is a broadcast of Dr. John Fonville. If you would like to visit Pastor John's church in Jacksonville, Florida, you're always welcome. You can find out more at ParamountChurch.com. I'm Josh Montez. Thanks for listening and join us next time.